0: brand new book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the Bible, 12 chapters long. Author is Solomon, written about 935 B.C. If we would give you an outline of the book, basically you'd have the problem stated in the first three verses, and that is all is vanity, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The main part of the book is really an experiment that Solomon had the wisdom and the resources to pretty much try a little bit of everything and to see the end result of it. So from chapter 1, beginning with verse 4, all the way to chapter 12, verse 12, we're going to find the author seeking to find fulfillment and satisfaction in science, wisdom and philosophy, and pleasure and materialism, in fatalism, in egotism, in religion, in wealth, and morality. All these things he's going to dabble in and experiment in. And then in chapter 12, the last two verses, we have the result of his experiment. So there's really no book like it in the Bible, and I think nobody more qualified to be able to comment on the reality that uh, Ecclesiastes now let's just jump right into the first three verses, and it sort of sums up the entire book. It tells us who the author is, the words of the preacher, the son of David, so is Solomon, the king, in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So here we have the foundational verse for the experiment now that he's going to dive into. As we'll look at the first part of it here, actually part of creation, nothing really changing as time moves on. Uh, we read in verse 4, One generation passes away and another generation comes. Every generation has their own quirks and characteristics to it. I'm part of the baby boomer generation. After us, there was a generation that came along called Generation X. And that lasted till the year 2000. And if you were born after 2000, then you're called a millennial. So we're in 2015, and that's October 21st, 2015. And you can go back to the future if you want to, but, you know, you guys did get that one? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody talks about the good old days and going back to the, the days when, um, of the baby boomer generation. But if we're honest about that, when you think about it, and you know, if I could only go back to high school, be in high school again, have that freedom. Are you kidding me? Don't you remember when you were in high school? What was the only thing you were talking about? Getting out of high school, right? But you go back and you think, oh, if I was only in high school again, well, we forget that we, we couldn't wait to get out of high school. So one generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides Forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to place where it rose. The wind goes towards the south, turns towards the north. The wind whirls around continually and comes again on its circuit. Now, speaking of circuits, we have in verse 7 the circuit and the cycle of the water cycle, which is called the hydrologic circle. All the rivers run into the, into the sea. Yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, they return again. And so there's this cycle that goes on and on and on. Uh, the oceans are never full, even though there's this constant evaporation, turns into condensation, it's gathered up in the clouds, it drops its water into the, the rivers, the rivers make their way back to the ocean, and you have, have this ongoing. Uh, cycle, and it's always been, and it always will be. That's Solomon's point here. But I want to do a little sidetrack and and say um, his point here is the cycle will never be interrupted. But actually, there is a time that it will be interrupted, and I want to go there. Uh, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 11, the hydrologic cycle. I'll tell you what, to set this up, Go to Revelation 7, first of all. And what we have in Revelation 7 is the beginning part of the six is the seals being opened, of course, in the beginning of the tribulation with the revealing of the Antichrist. But before, um, in chapter 7, we have the sealing of the 144,000. First thing you want to know is they are not Jehovah Witnesses, just so you know, for the record. And um, it tells us in verse 5 that there's 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, uh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And um, you'll notice Dan isn't mentioned there. That's a whole Bible study within itself. But before they're sealed, I want you to notice verse 1. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And so what we have here is in order for the hydro uh, uh, logic cycle, the water cycle, to work, you have to have the evaporation from the ocean, but then you have to have the wind current, the cycle that takes it Inland to drop its water but what if there's no wind here we're told there's no wind that the Lord during the tribulation period there will be a time when it will not rain on the planet Revelation chapter 11 turn there pick it up in verse 3 these are the two witnesses that appear God always leaves a witness on planet earth in the Old Testament Um, it was Israel, it was their job to be a witness that there was a God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They failed miserably uh, and they had to be reproved often. God spoke through the prophets, through dreams and visions but he always had a witness and when Jesus came, when they rejected him, John 1 verse 11 said, he came unto his own and and his own received him not. And one of the last things that Jesus said to the Jewish people before he was taken back into heaven, he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Israel, that was supposed to be the light, now is put on hold. Uh, Romans tells us blindness has happened in part. They're blinded right now to their Jewish Messiah until... So there's coming a time when the blindness of Israel is going to be removed until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. We're living in that age right now where a Gentile and the fullness of it implies a set number. And when that number is reached, when that last person gets saved, that's part of the bride of Christ, then the Lord's going to take us up in the rapture of the church. But in the meantime, we're the witness. So Israel was left off being that light. The church was given the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Be a witness, and we will be until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and the Holy Spirit with the church is removed at that time. But God always has a witness. So what's the first thing that happens after we're out of here? I believe two guys are gonna show up. I believe they are Moses and Elijah because of Matthew chapter 17 and the Mount of Transfiguration. And um, they're called the two witnesses. And um, to keep that train of thought alive just for a bit, they're actually gonna die after 1,260 days. And then God being true to his word, always having a witness, if you just look over at chapter 14, I know I'm getting a little sidetracked here. Um, But the point, again, I want to make is, even though the two witnesses are now killed, they lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and then they're bodily resurrected into heaven, and all the world sees it. Well, if God always leaves a witness, how is he going to witness then? Well, in chapter 14, verse 6, it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached unto all the world, and then the end will come. I don't think the church is going to do that. Um, But I believe that Matthew 24 prophecy that Jesus spoke about, the gospel being preached unto all the world, that's... that. That's what I just read, verse six. He still has a witness. Two witnesses are dead, so what does he do? He uses an angel. And one angel flies having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And people say, well, what about people not in the end being able to hear the gospel? No, everybody will hear it in their own language and understand it completely. All right, now let's go to chapter 11. Solomon says, it's always going to rain. The water cycle will always be here, and um, it'll always be that way. Well, this is the one exception. Um, I will give, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two stands standing before the God of the earth. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to kill them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And let's just stop there. How long is their prophecy? 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. What happens at the very beginning in Revelation 7? The Lord allows four angels to stop the wind from blowing. God bless you. That was quite a bit of wind that came from this direction right here. <laughs> but for this, here's this one exception, and um, it does give me an excuse just to remind everybody how late it really is that we're at the time where I believe the fullness of the Gentiles is pretty close. And I matter of fact, I think we're on boward time, to be honest with you, with all this taking place uh, so quickly. Um, for instance, today or yesterday, here's Putin shaking hands with Assad, the president of Syria. And uh, there are 150,000 troops that are there and uh, they're finally admitting that their targets aren't actually ISIS targets. And um, th- these are all just major, major roadside signs that you really want to uh, keep your eyes on. I told the gal today that cut my hair, you know, you and your husband been, need to be reading Ezekiel 38 right now because it's coming down. She's been cutting my hair for 30 years. Me and Carol are in a contest here how long it's been between our gal who cuts our hair. But um, she's, she's somewhat aware of what's going on. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's just happening today. All right, I got a little sidetracked. Let's get back to Ecclesiastes. The cycle will be broken for a period of three and a half, to, uh, three and a half years during the first half, just so there's no confusion, during the first half, 1,260 days of the witness of the two witnesses. And we know Elijah, for sure, is one of them. How do I know? The very last thing the Old Testament says is I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before that great and terrible day of the Lord. So he's going to come right at the beginning of it. And um, so we know one of them, positively, is is Elijah, and I think it's a slam dunk as far as Moses being the other one, but I um, would not be dogmatic on him. I would be on Elijah. All right, verse eight through 11. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new, Under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said? See, this is new. It has already been done in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. So in these verses, he's expressing, there's nothing new that people have come up with that hasn't been Done before. Chuck would often talk about this, and and um, um, one of the false prophets in, in in the Kansas City prophets, his name is Paul Kane, and um, when he came on the scene with the Kansas City prophets, oh, in the nineties, and uh, I remember Chuck getting up and saying, "This this isn't new. He, this is he's just coming out." and he's doing his recycle. Chuck said, I can remember when he was an evangelist in Southern California, and he was fleecing the flock back then. And he would get up, and uh, he would pray like this, Lord, you know that I need that new pair of shoes, size eight and a half b and Lord, you know that I have that need, so I just pray that you'd have that come to pass. And so Chuck was saying, I knew him back in like the 40s, but now he had reemerged as one of the He's a false prophet, along with Bob Jones and and uh, Mike Bickle and, uh, and the rest of the group that, that's there. And so Chuck's point was that's not new. He's been, uh, he's not been there, done that. He's just coming around the, the mountain again, so to speak. So in these verses here, there's there's nothing new under the sun. And then verses um, 12 through 18, uh, and here's the... The man who is most qualified to make this statement about wisdom. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This grievous task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity. And is simply a grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. So I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understand understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I have set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is a grasping of the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Turn with me to First Kings chapter 3. He says, with much wisdom is much grief. Whenever I do a funeral service, I usually begin it by going to um, 1 Kings 3 because it's Solomon taking over his dad's throne and we read in verse 3 that Solomon loved the Lord and he went to Gibeon, he made sacrifices and it was at Gibeon that the Lord actually appeared to him in verse 5 in a dream and he said, ask, what what should I give you? And just put, imagine that, the Lord appearing to you. And he's like, what do you want? You can have anything you want. What do you want? And um, he goes on to express his own inadequacy as being a king. He says in verse 7, he says, I'm like a little child. I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to come out. I'm not anything like that, that my dad at all. And he said, so I pray that you would give your servant Um, an understanding heart so I will be able to judge between what is right and what is wrong. So give me wisdom. And the Bible says in verse 10 that this prayer request pleased the Lord. And the Lord said, because you have asked this thing and you have not asked for long life for yourself, for riches, or you have not asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself an understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words, See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like before you nor any after you will arise wiser than the wisdom that I'm going to give you. Just let that settle in. I I like to start the funeral with that verse because when we get to Ecclesiastes 7, he's going to say the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And that sounds crazy. And it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. Some people think that's crazy. But i preface it by saying, no, listen to who's talking here. Here's the wisest man who's ever lived on this planet except the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go back to uh, Ecclesiastes. And when he said, "I've verse 17, I've set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. But he says, I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. So here you have the wisest man in the world who, who's actually bemoaning the fact that to have much wisdom is much grief and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now let me just tell you um, a personal experience that I can identify with and that is I do know this book. And I know the one thing that it teaches is that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And I'm very aware of that. And I'm very aware of the scriptures that teach both. And um, I've mentioned this before. Several years ago, I did an interview for the Christian paper in Wisconsin. And part of their questionnaire was, what's the most difficult thing you have to do as a pastor? I said, that's easy. And that's doing the funeral of somebody who's not saved. And the reason that's the most difficult, and I can't dwell, I can't even dwell on it very long. If I hear of one of my friends, um, several years ago, in the same week I had two friends that I didn't know had died. One got saved at the last minute and the other one didn't. And it, it was hard for me to dwell on it because I know too much about the subject. See, I know, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt if a person dies in their sins, they go to hell. And I can't think about that too much. And so when, when I say I identify with much wisdom comes much grief, and it can increase sorrow, um, uh, I identify with Solomon because I'm aware that this is not a, a gray area. This is black and white, If you're not born again and you're not saved, you're not going to heaven and you are going to hell. Everybody lives forever. Good place for an amen. Everybody lives forever, that's not the issue. The issue is where are you gonna live forever? Ask the rich man who died along with Lazarus. Lazarus was in heaven and the rich man who to this day is still in hell. Oh, he'll be resurrected. He'll be resurrected as it said in Revelation 20, it says, The dead and hell and the sea gave up the dead, and they all stood before the great white throne judgment. So they'll have to give an account. All right, let's pick it up in now, chapter 2, first three verses. I said in my heart, Come now, and I will test you with, with uh, mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this is also vanity. Talk about having anything you want as far as pleasure goes. Solomon had quite a sexual appetite when it came to pleasure. He had 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. I mean, do the math. How much time are you going to be able to spend with, with them throughout maybe a 30-year stretch or whatever? But um, the first verse, he's saying even that is also Vanity. And then he said, well, how about just being happy all the time and hanging out with people who like to tell um, uh, dumb jokes or good jokes or whatever. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of myrrh, what, what will it accomplish? Well, you know, there's people, that's, that's their, their thing, you know, Saturday Night Live. And, and give me a good laugh. Or uh, um, You know, I grew up in the, in the Johnny Carson generation. But it was the, late, the late show. And uh, some people, you know, that's what they live for, but you can't go to bed until that, that's over with, so you get a, get a good laugh off the monologue. And so verse 2 is talking about laughter. And then he said, I searched my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. It's interesting here, he says, but at the same time, while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under all the days of their lives. I don't think he's talking necessarily about getting drunk because he's using the terminology while guiding my heart with wisdom. He's in a test mode where he's going to try a little bit of everything to see if it brings any satisfaction to him. So it's not in... um, um, having a thousand wives, this is not in having a merry heart, um, or in the pursuit of, in this case, what he was using, wine as an example. Then he goes on in verse four, he said, I made great works. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. Um, McGee commenting on verse four uh, will be, Showing these places when we get to Israel in a couple weeks. He says, um, McGee comments on verse four, he says, these were hobbies with Solomon, these building projects. Even today, the ruins of the stables of Solomon can be seen in Jerusalem and in several other places. At Megiddo, for instance, we'll stop at Megiddo. Megiddo was actually a place uh, where Solomon had his horse stables, and uh, he goes on to say, you can see the ruins of the troughs where the horses ate. Solomon had stables all over the land, although the Mosaic law expressly expressly forbidden a king to multiply horses and wives. So here you have the wisest man in the world, and what is he doing? He's multiplying himself, wives and horses. So he... Um, is isn't necessarily practicing when he preaches on that one. But he had these great work projects. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants. I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possession of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. He made Jerusalem, at, uh, we, we read, um, uh, silver was nothing. It was like stones to, to them in the city. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. He had 600, the only other place 666 occurs besides Revelation 13 is in the, uh, the talents of gold that came to Solomon in one year. It was 666 talents of gold. And so I gathered this treasure and especial treasures of kings and of the province. I acquired male and female servants, singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. In David's, when he wrote uh, with the psalmist uh, at, at one time, um, there were... 5,000, if, if uh, my memory serves me correctly, that were involved in the worship at the, at the temple. So I became great and excelled more than any who were before me in Jerusalem, and yet also my wisdom remained in me. And um, and then he said, I looked at all the works of my hands that I had done and all the labor which I had toiled and indeed all was vanity and grasping of the wind. There's no profit under the sun. Money meant nothing to him. Oprah Winfrey in one day this week made $70 million. Tonight it was up to $100 million, All because she bought a little bit of uh, stock into Weight Watchers and has become a spokesperson. So ask a millionaire or a billionaire, how much is enough? And you know what they'll tell you? Just a little bit more. Why? Because it doesn't satisfy. You still want more, even though you got more than you could possibly ever, ever want. And he, he said, look, I had it all. I had all the wisdom, I had all the money, I had all the gold. And what's his con- con- uh, conclusion? There's no profit under the sun. This is This is also vanity, And uh, so I hope nobody's jealous over Oprah tonight (laughs) and her 70 million. Um, This is a good place to just throw this in there. Uh, Let's let's finish 12 through 17. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So you can be a wise person or you can be a fool, but in the end it doesn't really matter because they both have the same fate. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Question. Then I said in my heart, this also was vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise than of a fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a fool, and how does a wise man die? As a fool. Same way. Therefore, he says, I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. And he asked this hypothetical question in verse 12. What can a man do who succeeds the king? What if I acquire all this stuff? What if I gain all this wisdom and then I have to turn it over to somebody who's not wise? All right, let's see who he turned it over to. Let's go to First Kings Chapter 12, Solomon is now dead. And Rehoboam, his son, comes to the throne. All of Israel gathers to him in Shechem to make him king. And so it was when Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, and he had been dwelling in Egypt. And then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and the whole congregation of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our life pretty difficult. He put a heavy yoke on us. Now, therefore, lighten the burden, the service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we'll serve you. So he said to them, I'll tell you what, leave me alone for a couple days and then come back. And so the people departed. During that three days, uh, Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon. Now these would have been men who would have been tutored by the wisest man who ever walked this planet besides Jesus. And believe me, they would have gleaned a lot of wisdom and insight just being associated with Solomon. And he says, uh, he asks a question, how do you advise me to answer the people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today, and serve them and answer them, speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the counsel which the elders gave them, and he consulted the young men, his buddies who he grew up with, who stood before him, and he said, What do you, what do you guys say? How, should he, how do you think I should answer the people, lighten up the yoke which your fathers put on us. Then the young men who had grown up with him uh, spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you will say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father laid a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke, and um, my father chastised you with whips, I'm going to do it with scourges. And so here, let's go back to tie it in now with what he is saying in, in Ecclesiastes, verse 12. Then I turned and I, I considered the matter of wisdom and folly. For what can a man do who succeeds the king? How do I know if he's going to be smart? I'm, I have no choice in the matter, I'm going to be gone. And uh, we go back and we find that's exactly what happened. He had a son who would not listen to the wisdom of elders, but rather listened to his buddies that, he, that uh, hung out with him. If you ask me, I think they were just looking for a, a position in the cabinet, so to speak. Verse 24 through 26 now, he goes on to talk about working hard, and the labor itself. He says, Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Well, we found out he wouldn't listen. He was a fool. Rehoboam. Yet he will rule over all my labor which I have toiled and which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turn my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the, under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom and knowledge and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This is also vanity and great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for all the striving of his heart with, with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, his work grievous. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This is also vanity. This is a good place where I'd like to quote as he's talking about the futility and the vanity of pleasure, work accomplishments. Most men um, get their gratification when somebody says, so what do you do? And you say, well, this is my position. This is my job. This is what I do. And um, others uh, get it out of being famous or having some achievement that they can point to. But what we've learned thus far, and what I want to throw in at this point, is that it doesn't really matter because it's all all these other pursuits from the pleasure to the building accomplishments, you're gonna have to die someday. And when that happens, you leave it all behind. There isn't anything you can take with you. Somebody wanna say amen at this point. Now, this is where this little saying is, I've I've said it a million times from the pulpit, as Chuck has and many people, but the truth in it really hits home when we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And that is this, only one life. It'll soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. I mean, it's a clever little saying that we all know. But Ecclesiastes really brings out the truth of that simple statement. The only thing that's gonna matter, and we'll see how far we get with our study tonight, if I can get to chapter um, three and tie this together, is when all is said and done, You can't take anything with you. That T-shirt, the one who dies with the most toys wins? No. The one who dies with the most toys still dies, period. (laughs) And takes absolutely nothing with him. So that brings us to uh, the first time I ever heard um, somebody tell me that there was a song that came out of the Bible. And so here we have the first eight verses of Turn, Turn, Turn. Put to music by Pete Seeger, and made popular by the Birds. And um, I remember hearing it. And I was a big Birds fan. I didn't know Pete Seeger is the one who put it to music, but somebody said, "Yeah, but the words come from the Bible." Now well, you got to be kidding! This song comes from the Bible. And here it is. Let's read it. To everything, there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain, a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time of war, and a time of peace. And so you have in the in between, turn, 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 going back through your mind. And that's, of course, where this song comes from. It was penned by Solomon. And we have it in the first eight verses of uh, chapter three. Picking up in verse nine, the whole idea that we're unique because we have a soul and humans, contrary to um, Animals, which we'll get to in verse 21, we have a spirit and soul body interconnected, and it makes us unique. In verse 10, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has put every, he has made everything beautiful in His time. All right, now you know where the song comes from. In His time. He makes all things beautiful in his time. But he has also put eternity in their hearts. And this is where we differ from the animal kingdom. And um, this awareness that there's this place that we can grasp eternity looking forward, I can't grasp it looking backwards. I can't wrap my head around the idea that our Heavenly Father has always been, that our Lord Jesus Christ has always been, that the Holy Spirit has always been. The angels were created, but God has always existed. I can't, my my brain can't wrap my eternity around going backwards. Going forward, I can grasp the concept because I'm alive now, I have a spirit. I've seen generations come, I've seen generations go, and I know that the Lord has put eternity in our hearts and we think about it. When we get to chapter seven, this is the point that, that, that he wants to make. Uh, he says, uh, going to a funeral is better than going to a party. Why? Because the living will lay it to heart. And I like to, uh, during a funeral, say, people don't think about eternity when they're watching the Packers. You're just not thinking about eternity. But you are at a funeral, because that could be you in that casket. Or you know that it's eventually going to be you, and then what? And anybody that's got a little Bible knowledge is aware that Jesus spoke often about eternity in heaven and the consequences for both. So he has put eternity in our hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end. No, I don't. His ways are past finding out. I know that there's nothing better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is a gift of God. Let me just just say this as he's gonna get into this um, uh, mode of eat, drink, and be merry type idea. And that is the only thing that... um, could be said about Jesus is that he went around doing good and they wanted to challenge him in court he he confronts him and he said okay for which one of my good works do you want to condemn me for because you see that's all he did all Jesus did was going around doing good the only people he called on the carpet were the hypocritical Pharisees and he does very strongly in Matthew chapter 23. He gives them no wiggle room at all. He calls them on the carpet for the hypocrites that they were. But um, here it talks about enjoying uh, your lives. And and um, verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken away from it. Uh, there is the danger Uh, of that in um, uh, Revelation 22. That's how the Bible ends. Make sure you don't mess with this book. You don't add to it. You better make sure you don't take away anything from it. And he goes on to say this in verse 15, that which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Now, the study's going to end tonight with the Lord wanting us to know whether you're saved and born again and stand before the judgment seat of Christ or whether you're watching live stream or you're here tonight and for some reason uh, you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What we're reading here is that there is a judgment that is going to take place for both. So let's read it. The end, and we will be able to to go where I wanted to go tonight. So, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. And there will be a time for every purpose and for every work. In other words, it's all being taken note of what we do, how we spend our time, our resources, our stewardship. So I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like beasts. And that's what Paul learned. We'll be talking more about this on Sunday. That um, in in man, there's there's really a futility and a hopelessness that's there. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to the beast. One thing befalls them and one dies, so dies the other. Everybody's going to die. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over beast for all his vanity. And all go to one place, for all come from the dust and return to dust. So this is where we get to saying, dust to dust ashes to ashes, comes from Ecclesiastes. Verse 21, okay, this this is going to cause division in, in everybody who's listening to me tonight. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of a beast, which goes down to earth, which begs the question, am I going to get to see my dog when I get to heaven? And... Um, I have teased people over the years that some are persuadable, absolutely. you know, There's horses in heaven, so why can't my dog be there? Well, you have this one verse that you're going to have to wrestle with, gang. And that is that uh, the spirit and the soul is something that um, God's creation, man and woman, he's breathed into. And uh, when their spirit is released, just like in the story of the rich man of Lazarus, Lazarus was taken, carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, but the rich man just died. But being dead, he was very aware, very conscious that he had five brothers and he didn't want them to come to that place. And he begged Abraham to to send somebody. If somebody rises from the dead, oh, they'll believe then. And Abraham said, no, they won't. If they won't believe this book, What we're reading tonight. This is what God has chosen. The foolishness of preaching and teaching to save people. Good time for an amen. This is what he's chosen. He chooses foolish people. He he chooses the foolish things of the world to purposely confound the wise so that God will get the credit and the glory for it. And so that's why we read, there's not many wise that are called. There's not many noble. He says, look amongst yourself. Um... And the tragedy of it is a lot of these wise men started out uh, the guy who uh, started uh, Harvard, for instance. I was reading about him today. Um, he was a believer, and he dedicated all of his, uh, his estate to Harvard. Well, you're not going to find a more liberal atheistic university on the planet than Harvard and even, even here in, in Appleton at Lawrence, it was a Presbyterian, I think it was a Presbyterian Seminary. That's what it started as. And of course, now it's extremely liberal, and you're not gonna hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ being preached over one of the lectures over at Lawrence. Nothing against high education or higher education, but with that, Paul says, we speak wisdom amongst those who are wise. And he says if you're not born again, the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. So when you get saved, you're just beginning the wisdom process. Now he's making the point in verse 22, and this is where we'll end it. So I perceive that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage, who can bring him to see what will happen after him. All right, it says here God's going to judge every work for the righteous and the wicked. Let's uh, go to two places tonight and show you where the righteous will be judged. We need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter three. Two judgments. In 1 Corinthians three, this is called the judgment seat of Christ. It's also mentioned in 2 Corinthians. And it's talking, it's also referred to as the Bema seat. And um, where it says that the Lord is keeping track and, and record of uh, men's rewards, this is actually, when we put this edition on, I put 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 on our cornerstone. It's right, as you go outside the door, it's right over to the left. It says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, or straw. And then he says, Each one's work will be made manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed or tested by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Let me give you an example. Jesus said, When you do your good deeds, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, because your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Um, I just saw this program, and somebody's giving away some foundation, is giving away $1,000 to somebody, and, but they make a big deal out of it, and they show them the check, and the press is there, and the whole nine yards. Well, you got your reward, because you did it before men to be seen of men. But he says, if you're wise, you'll do your good works in such a way that you will receive a reward for it. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know how much of my Christian walk has been wood, hair, stubble. Paul said, I don't even judge myself. He says, my my flesh is so doggone tricky, I don't even know if I'm having the right motive for doing what I'm doing. And that's the Apostle Paul. So he says, I don't even judge myself. But guess who's going to? Um, Someday the Lord's going to say, Dwight, your heart was right on on that one. You thought your heart was right on in this one, but it was totally off. It was nothing but wood and stubble, and it's going to be burnt up and gone. But I'm praying and hoping there's, there's some gold and silver in there somewhere. And what I mean by that are simply things that are done in the name of Jesus. He says, even giving a glass of water to somebody in Jesus's name, you won't lose your reward. Now, that's not much. But if you just want to Make a little extra change in heaven on the side. Go around giving away water in Jesus' name. It's all getting tallied up. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, endures what? The all-seeing eyes of an all-knowing God who knows and the only one who knows the motive of your heart and my heart. I don't know why you do what you do. God does, and he's the only one who does and he's gonna make it all crystal clear on the day we have the judgment seat of Christ. If anyone's work is burned, all right, I did it with the wrong reason. My heart wasn't right and my motive wasn't right. He will suffer loss, but notice this, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. What does that mean? That means that there's gonna be anybody who's accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior is going to heaven apart from doing any good works. They lived their whole life for themselves. But they accepted Christ. They believed that Jesus uh, died for their sins on the cross. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And what? And nothing. And if you do nothing, you're not going to have anything in heaven. I'll tell you one person, the only person I know that doesn't have any rewards in heaven is a thief who died on the cross. All he said on his deathbed is, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. What good works did he have? Well, he was a thief, he had no good works. Was he ever baptized? Nope. Did he ever go to church or synagogue? Nope. He was a thief, and he was paying the penalty for his crime. He had nothing going for him. But guess what? He has eternal life. And that was granted on the basis of believing that Jesus was who he, he said. Lord, remember me. The word Lord. Lord, remember me. So um, it's possible and um, it's unfortunate. I think uh, I heard John Corson describe it this way one time. He said, in heaven there's going to be fullness of joy. I mean, everybody's going to have the fullness of joy. And John put it this way, but he says some people's joy bundle is going to be bigger than others. Remember it says in Daniel that those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever in heaven. Can you imagine having people coming up to you and, and reminding you from time to time in heaven, oh, I sure praise the Lord for you because you were the instrument that God used that told me about Jesus so that I could believe and now look, I'm in heaven. And it's all because you, you Sunday school teacher, or um, person who's witnessing and to everybody all the time about Jesus, uh, that glory that I think is spoken about there is really the gratitude of people that are Christians because of what you did in sharing the gospel with them. All right, this is the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, has nothing to do with your salvation, but has everything to do and should motivate you again. Only one life will soon be passed, only one sudden for Christ will last. Now, let's talk about the uh, rich man who's still in hell. And we'll close on a very positive note by talking about hell tonight. Revelation 20. And. Um, This man, there's always those smart Alex, like President Reagan's son, I can't believe always oh, he in for a surprise, and he's standing up uh, for freedom against religion, and I've, I'm sure you've seen the commercial, and the last thing he says, and by the way, I'm not afraid to burn in hell, end of his commercial and um, Oh, what a surprise Ronald Reagan Jr. is going to have someday if that's his mindset when he breathes his last because it's going to be the same as the rich man. Verse 11, Revelation 20. This is the second judgment. Job, not Job, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says that the righteous are going to be judged And that, our righteousness, of course, we're righteous because of Jesus. He he is our righteousness. Those who die in their sins, they're gonna be resurrected too. Revelation 20, then I saw the great white throne, and with him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and it was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small, and great stand before God, and books, notice plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is called the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works and by the things that were written in the book. So what does that mean? That means everything you ever thought, an action, deed, every lie you ever told everything you ever stole every sin you ever committed it's all there and you won't be able to deny it. you're going to have your day in court and the evidence is going to be overwhelmingly against you because the condition for eternal life is perfection and when Jesus said don't think that I've come to destroy the law but to fulfill it what that means was the law is what we broke Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. a tree, guilty and all the above. Thou shalt, not, thou shalt love your neighbor, not hate him. we guilty if we've broken every one of them. One man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only man who's ever walked this planet who could say, I've not come to destroy it, I've come to fulfill it. What does that mean? It means he did it perfectly. He never sinned one time in thought, word, or deed and then second corinthians 5 verse 21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god he took my sin and he gave me his righteousness and i like to call that the great exchange bruce sang that song here a couple weeks ago when he was with us and that's what that's all about. I deserve everything that these guys are here because I've committed everything that's written down in their book. And they were judged according by their works, by the things that were written in the book. And then the sea gave up the dead and and all who were in it. And death and Hades, that's where the rich man, he's going to be resurrected, delivered up the dead who were in them, And they were judged, each one according to their works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We don't talk about hell enough. And um, as we get into the book and close up tonight in the book of Ecclesiastes, here the wisest man in the world is talking about (laughs) the futility of everything and the only thing that that makes sense is um, the last two verses of chapter 12 which we're not going to read tonight until we get to chapter 12 last two verses so let's stand and we'll close in prayer Lord we thank you as we dive into um, this book that speaks such wisdom and such truth about the futility about the vanity of life And, um, Lord, there's simply no meaning or purpose without knowing you. And we're so grateful, Lord, for all that you've done. We know we don't deserve eternal life. We know that we're guilty as charged for our sins. But, Lord, it's that which makes us want to praise you. It's that which makes us want to worship you and just to glorify you for all you've done And you and you alone, Lord, deserve all the credit. When the disciples asked the question, what can we do to do the works of God? You told them straight out, simply believe in the one the Father sent. So Jesus, in closing tonight, we love you, we believe in you, and we're so grateful, Lord, for this book. And we pray for Ecclesiastes as we uh, maneuver our way through it, Lord. Please anoint it and bless it to your people and help us have the right perspective When we walk through these doors realizing we're entering a mission field and really only those things that are done for you are really going to count when it comes to eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.